0: Welcome to the Doing Useful Things podcast. I'm Dave Keeler. Today I'm talking with Michael Harold. Michael coaches others in building confidence and conversational and social skills. He is the developer and head coach for the Art of Charms online core confidence program. Prior to coaching, he was a character animator on 3D animated movies and TV series. We talk about overcoming challenges and Michael's recipes for self-improvement. Here's Michael. We're here with Michael Harold in uh, Vienna, Austria, on a typical gray winter day in Vienna. But still uh, pretty nice weather by Vienna standards. It's not too cold. It's not too cold.
1: But, it's not uh, too cold no. Uh,
0: welcome, Michael. Thanks well, for uh, inviting me over to talk today.
1: Well, thank you guys for, for having me. It's, it's yeah. great, great to be here.
0: Yeah, and uh, we're excited to talk about uh, some things that Michael's working on. Uh, one of the things that Michael and I talked about before we started was uh, resilience, and I think it might be a, a good topic to talk about today, uh, among other things. So Michael, go ahead and uh, tell us a little about yourself.
1: Wow, there's, <laughs> where do I start here? Um, I've warned you before that I've known to go into like 15-minute rants, and uh, people have to like drag me away from the microphones. I'll try my best to keep this brief. I'll just turn your um, mic off. And... <laughs> oh, good. Let's just do that. Um, I'm... I'm training people to be more confident. I'm doing social skills training as well. Um, I primarily work with the art of charm. Um, they're, they're based in Los Angeles and they do a lot of social skills training and I'm their European satellite coach, um, running their online program and helping with the research and production of their podcast as well.
0: Okay. So coach, tell me a little bit about being a coach and how you got there.
1: So this is a little bit of a serendipitous route. Um, I used to work in the film industry for over a decade. I was doing um, computer animation, so TV and, and um, feature film. The most known projects that I work o- worked on are probably Kung Fu Panda and the Penguins of Madagascar. Um, the, the TV series, not, not the feature films. And so I was doing this for over a decade. And at one point, I was living in New Zealand at the time. I realized that I've kind of reached everything I wanted to reach in that regard, like it couldn't get any better. And I saw that I could take my life into two directions from here on out. I could either keep working in the industry, uh, make good money, travel the world, work on amazing projects and then retire and die, or I could take this into a different direction. and. Teach people to go after their own dreams and make them a reality because that's what what I did. And um, given that I work, I live with a disability with a neuromuscular condition called called spinal muscular atrophy. and I'm Using an electric wheelchair, I figured that I'm kind of in a unique position to kick some butt. Hmm. And I well, the real motivation behind this was that when I was a kid i didn't have anyone who would tell me how to take life on like i had very supportive parents but i didn't have anyone who told me hey look like just because you have a disability doesn't mean you can't do those things well that's what my parents did of course but no one like took me by the hand and said, hey, this is how you do it. Stop complaining. Stop bitching around. Here's here's a three step action plan. And if you follow that, you know, you have a good chance of going after your dreams. And I sat there at the beach in New Zealand where I was living at the time. And I realized that I could be that person. I could be that person to a lot of people, especially young adolescents living with a disability, and I could be the one who could say, hey, look, stop complaining. Get your shit in order. Um, do this and this and this and start working on your dreams and because of my unique position they wouldn't have that many like excuses out on the entire thing so that was really the initial motivation to get started with this and so I quit my job I came back to Germany that's where I'm originally from if you can't tell from my from my sexy accent and um, became a public speaker And I trained with my own role model, Sean Stevenson, who unfortunately passed away last year. And after my training, I started traveling Europe and I gave talks. And one of them um, I gave here in Vienna at TEDx and in the Volkstheater. So imagine this, you're in Volkstheater, you give a talk to over a thousand people, you get standing ovations. At that point, you probably think you're confident. And that's what I was thinking. And so there was a meetup happening about two weeks after my talk and in the Volkstheater. And this meetup was called the Comfort Zone Crusher Meetup. And it was advertised as, we're going to go out of our comfort zone. We're going to do silly experiments. We're going to get uncomfortable. We boost our confidence. And I was scared about this. I was really scared. And at the same time, I thought, come on, what are these guys going to teach me, right? I'm, it's just in front of a thousand people. Um, I am confident I got this. So I went there. It happened. It, it, was, it was organized in, in, this, in this living room in, the, I think, the 20th district. And there were like 10, 20 people. And we did some self-development work. And at the end of the event, we went out to Kantner Straße to do some comfort zone challenges so we would go out there and we would just do things that are inherently uncomfortable so the challenges that i had picked for myself were give a high five to strangers um tell them a stupid joke and uh, do do the time machine skit which is uh, something we can talk about later so i was there at kentner straße and I was petrified I was completely frozen I could do nothing I was trembling I was sweating when I saw strangers and I thought okay I could give a high five to that person there like my hand wouldn't even move so I realized maybe I'm not as comfortable or as confident as I think I am or I thought I was and luckily i had a coach by my side and he would like push me through those exercises and we would look at my what i'm thinking and what i'm feeling and what's going on right now and then finally would go through this entire thing and I'd high five strangers and I high five this little like 3 year old kid and then the dad came after me he's like holy shit you know and I'm going to get beaten up and he was like no oh, I want a high five too man so i had i had a lot of fun there and i left the uh, i left the event like with this big smile on my face because i felt so alive of, making all those strangers laugh and have a good time and interact with them. And I told the organizers like, I need this in my life. This is so good. Um, I know you guys do those meetups every week. Remember my face because I'm going to be here every single week until I got this figured out. I need this in my life. And they looked at me and they said, well, Mike, you know, sorry, but next week is the last one. We're leaving Vienna. We're not doing this anymore. And I said to them, no, like this cannot, this cannot go away. Um, if it's okay with you guys, I'll pick some of the veterans from the group that have done this a couple of times, and we'll organize these meetups. We'll we'll do it because we we need them, and that's what happened. Um, they left a week later. Um, these meetups were happening in my living room here, um, every single Saturday for one and a half years. So close to a hundred meetups with. 10 to 30 people in my living room every Saturday except Christmas and before I knew it um, I was a coach and the original guys reached back out to me and they said hey we want a coach to run online training you've done more workshops than we did Uh, would you like to be a coach and that's what kind of got me started on the entire thing.
0: Wow cool so now uh, how do you if, how do you get the confidence that you're training and coaching these people through to stick?
1: Yes, that is that is such an interesting question because that wasn't obvious to us um, at the beginning. And when I say us, I mean the original organizers at the beginning and then myself because we became the team that run this little company. Um, because what what I saw a lot in those workshops was that there were people that would do those comfort zone challenges again and again and again like they would push themselves um i, I couldn't even believe what they were pushing them, they, they would be out on Maria Hilferstrasse and purposefully try to get rejected like 30 times by asking stupid stuff like, can I wear your pants? Um, do you have 100 euros? Can I, can I, um, I don't know, can you touch my head or just stuff where you know that people would look at you and they would kind of like look, have this weird look on their face and just like you, you're weird, go away.
0: It's kind of like a, a cognitive behavioral therapy with. Uh, exactly. Cognitive social exposure. situations, right? Exactly.
1: Exposure, classic exposure. Exposure therapy. therapy. Yeah. Right. And what and, but some people would be able to transfer those skills into their real life and so as we looked into this more and more we saw that the solution to or the the magic formula was not so much the exposure itself but it was what was happening before the exposure so before you do something that is inherently uncomfortable whether that's getting a high five from a stranger or telling your co-worker that they need to get their shit together, whatever it is, um, you'll have a lot of unhelpful thoughts and a lot of unhelpful emotions that just, you know, your your inner critic speaks up. There's anxiety creeping in. You're stressed right. out. And triggers. And, yeah. And then people can just, you know, push through and just, I'll just do it. I'll just do it. Um, and then there are those people that learn to play with the struggle. They learn that the inner critic speaks up, anxiety creeps in, and it's like, yeah, I'm used to that. I, I know my inner critic. You know, we've, we've I've heard this guy or this girl so many times. I know what they have to say, and I know it can't stop me. So it's not so much that the fear goes away. It's more like the struggle is a different one. It turns from, oh, no, I'm struggling to, yeah, I'm struggling. I'm used to that. I know I can handle it.
0: And is that just through repetition or other exercises you no, can
1: do? No, there are processes in play that go back to um, CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and more specifically um, acceptance and, and commitment therapy. And the this is, well, I, I run an eight-week coaching program on this, so I'll not walk you through the entire thing, but I'll give you a brief overview. An eight-week coaching session on CBT? Um, acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah. Okay. So it's a... Uh, so it's a, it's a, I don't want to say it's a new version of CBT, but it's been called like the third wave of CBT. So at the very beginning, you had classical behavioral therapy with you know Skinner and his rats and his pigeons. And then you had um, CBT, which was a lot about um, changing your thoughts and then questioning thoughts, thought disputation it's called. So I'm um, having the thought that I'm not good enough. Let me get a piece of paper and write out 20 things while I'm actually a really cool dude. That mm-hmm. would be it the, you know, the classical CBT approach, um, the, the thing with acceptance and commitment therapy is that you kind of leave out, you, you don't disputate your thoughts, you don't, um, you don't get into an argument with yourself trying to disprove them. It's more like you see your thoughts, think about it like that. Um, if imagine you would, so this is a metaphor, um, you're driving to you want to drive to Paris in your car. And for most of us, the way that this would work is that we're the passenger and our thoughts and our emotions, they're kind of driving the car. So it's our job to think the right things and to feel the right things. And then we would drive towards Paris, mm-hmm. which is a big problem because all you're trying to do is think the, right, think the positive stuff and feel motivated and then you're driving, which is a huge problem. Um, what we're training is we shift the seats. So you're now at the driving wheel, your thought, your your goals and your values and your desire to make it to Paris. That's the one that's holding the driving wheel and your emotions and your thoughts there on the passenger seat. That doesn't mean they're getting out of the car. You can never wait and say, you know what? I'm gonna turn this key and I'm gonna start driving once the bad emotions and the bad thoughts are out of the car because they'll never leave they'll sit next to you and they'll tell you you're driving too fast you're driving too slow you just ran over a little puppy paris is the other direction you don't know what you're doing but the point is you're driving and you're going towards your your destination and that is that is basically what we're doing so we, we train to take thoughts less seriously
0: so the thoughts of the passengers and almost along the lines of uh I've heard this with people who have OCD that sometimes has been successful to say, when the thought comes into a mind of, to do the compulsive behavior, well, there's, that's just my OCD. There it is. Mm-hmm. And not fighting it, but saying, okay, there it is, acknowledging it. And just by acknowledging that it's there and doing its own thing seems to lessen the severity of the desire to commit that
1: compulsive behavior. Yes. Yes. Um, one. one so to stick with the car metaphor, you kind of have a gas pedal and you have a brake pedal. And the, the brake pedal, that's all of your thoughts and your emotions that try to stop you. Because that's what our mind evolved to do, like the, the brain that we have today evolved like 50,000 years ago. And it's it's very good at detecting um, danger and problems, because that's what kept all of our ancestors safe. You always wanted to be the scaredy cat, like if our ancestors um both of our ancestors were to walk through the savannah and my great 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 grandfather sees like a banana tree and yours your great great grandfather goes like well but there's a saber-toothed tiger sitting next to it um and and my great friends like oh come on you always see the glass half empty right guess who would be sitting here today Uh, right not not me because you know you wanted to be the the scary cat you You wanted to be the one who was kind of worried of everything and so that's still the brain that we have today, but it's mm-hmm. no longer um, serving us in most in most cases. So so that's really the break, the, 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 the unhelpful thoughts and the unhelpful emotions. And on the other side, you have the gas pedal, and those are your values and your goals. So the idea is that um, you learn to get your foot off the brake and put the foot down on the gas. So your behavior is now organized by what's important to you in life and not by what you think or how you're feeling.
0: You know, it's a really good segue into resilience Mm -hmm. in the sense of uh, what you're saying about the negativity bias and how it kind of drives us. And if you think about, uh, let's say, celebrities who have, you know, by many people's standards, everything, fame, fortune, you know, what have you, yet they read one negative tweet that anybody could have written just because they're bored or whatever, and it drives them crazy. And you know you have politicians or leaders who uh, again have reached the, you know very high levels of their career, yet they get in these inane Twitter wars, right over nothing. And uh, so when I think about you know the, these high-powered people or these you know gift or the people in our society like celebrities whomever that have everything yet they get upset over something small, and you think about wow. It doesn't seem like they're too resilient in the sense of being able to get over these setbacks or get over some negativity. And, uh, you know, we had talked a little bit about resilience Mm -hmm. before we turned on the mic. And so I think it's a great opportunity to bring it up. And are you able to, in your class, through teaching these types of things, does that actually, are you actually teaching resilience?
1: Yes. Yes definitely through a big part of that is exposure therapy um just you know this this week my my current class that i'm that i'm teaching is um this week their homework is to go out there into the streets of wherever they're living um it's a it's a bunch of 10 people um, that's the max group size and this week they're out there so they're primarily north american there's also europeans um in there and wherever they are in the world this week, they have to get selfies with strangers.
0: This is an online class.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so they're they're out there and they're you know fighting with their inner demons to ask a complete stranger and ridicule themselves um, to to get a selfie out of that. And of course, the only idea behind that is not because I want them to take selfies. It's because it brings up a lot of the inner critic. It brings up a lot of the unhelpful emotions that usually is going to stop them from from doing things. And they do this um, once and they're like, holy shit, like, this was really easy. Like this guy was actually really happy to take a selfie with me. And then they do it a second time and a third time. And every time it becomes a little bit easier due to, <laughs> it was the best, the best thing that happened was that one guy um, did it at the drive-thru at a fast food joint. And so he would get his stuff out of the window. And then he'd ask the lady, hey, can I take a selfie with you while I'm here? So they posed for a silly selfie with this fast food bag in front of it. And the next time he went to the burger joint, um, he was ordering his stuff at the, at the stand of the microphone. And it was the same lady. And she asked him, hey, would you like a selfie with your order? So something like that happens to you and you start seeing the world a little bit, diff- a little bit differently. Uh, you see that. All those negative things that you thought are going to happen actually you just tested it out and nothing bad happens and even if it does it's not half as bad as you ever thought that that it would be because it was just a no it was just a smile it was just a roll of the eyes and it's not half as bad as as you thought it was and do something like that often enough and you're on one side, you're building a a thicker skin, which I think is uh, quite synonymous with resilience. And on the other, um, you also develop out your skills and you get better at asking for things, you get better at addressing conflict um, or voicing your own opinions. So on one side, you have the thicker skin. On the other side, you have increased um, skills to bring that stuff out. And you end up with well, a lot more resilience i hope
0: so then it's again it's back to practice right it sounds like a lot of practice, practice and yeah. exposing yourself to the fact that it's not as bad as you think it your your brain has made it out to be
1: there are no quick hacks there are no when it comes to stuff like that there's no magic formula there's no no trick no shortcut it's it's practice it's work so what
0: about there are probably people in situations when there is very few good things happening. When you try something, and you know, to give your example, that people you know tell you to go f yourself and leave me alone, and and they chase you off or whatever it may be, or you know, people are, are in situations that are much more traumatic, and it's just like nothing is working. Is there a way? Beyond that, when they're when they're at when the the experiences that they're having are continually negative.
1: Uh, well, when you when you talk about continually negative social experiences, you just have to talk with those um, brave souls out there that collect signatures or memberships for like uh, Greenpeace or World, Wildlife Fund or you know what, what save the whales, um, save the dolphins, saved the save the otters. Um, I I love to talk with those guys, and they say it's just brutal. Like the first one or two days, like they come home crying, and fifty percent of them just give up. But they say you do this for a week, and you don't care anymore that someone someone tells you to just get lost, you know, just walks away. It's just like it's just the next thing that that happens. Um, So that's that's just repeated exposure when 95% of what you're hearing is is just negative, you're so desensitized to it, um, that it doesn't really sting that much anymore. But you also need to take into consideration here that it's not just repeated exposure to negative experiences, it's tied to something that's inherently important for them. So these guys get rejected um, 95 times for every hundred people they talk to because they want to save the dolphins. And that's really important for them.
0: So the higher value supersedes exactly. that
1: Exactly. It's the, the goals and the values that drive the behavior and not the thoughts and the feelings or the negative responses that you're getting. Now, when we talk about what was the second, the second more extreme case that you had?
0: Uh, if someone's in a situation where it's uh, it's not a social thing, it's maybe tra- trauma, um, I'm not going to address like depression because that's different. That's a, yes. that's a medical thing. But in situations where things just keep going wrong and they're trying and it's just not working and the, the exercise itself, the exposure itself, the repetitive process is just knocking them down and down and down. And I ask you because I'm wondering, you'd mentioned that there's no, you know, that maybe there's no secret weapon and it is about practice and you know getting yourself out there and continually trying but my i guess my question is when you're not getting any positive feedback and you how do you how do you persist through something like that
1: this is you know this is something where it's difficult to give a one size fits all answer Um, if i were to work with a client who tells me something like that, um, that could go in a variety of directions. Um, Maybe their goal is just surrealistic. It's just not going to happen if um, if you were to come here and, you know, start training with me and you tell me, Mike, you know, I'm trying to fly. I'm trying every day. I hop out of the second store window and it's not working. Uh, we wouldn't work on your resilience. I would tell you, look, dude, you're you're being stupid here. Like this is right. not like that. So that could be one one extreme example, um, but just in general, the moment goals are so my my general experience is that once goals are set um, in a healthy manner, they're not um, narcissistic. They're you know, what on one side for myself, but also toward a bigger goal. They're they're set realistically, they're smart smart goals. Um it usually extremely rare that there is not some sort of progress. And of course there's always setbacks, you always take two steps forward, one back, maybe one forward, two back. But there usually is always progress once it's done. Um in a in an appropriate manner. And yeah, there's sometimes shit hits the fan and, and life like really hits us hard. But I find I very rarely see it if I think I've never seen it where shit just kept hitting the fan like day after day after day after day after day. Yes, but not not year after year after year, endeavor after endeavor.
0: No, I like what you said about kind of reprogramming repro- or refocusing your your goals and values. Or maybe clarifying your values and having those then drive what your goals are. Maybe your goal needs to be adjusted a little bit so that you're not constantly hitting the wall.
1: But here's the thing. So I recently looked into this entire vision board stuff and um, there's such a big discrepancy between what you read in the self-development literature in a bookstore and what you actually read in scientific studies. Uh, Positive affirmations are one of those things that, just been scientifically debunked vision boards are another Um, the the problem that you have with vision boards and I use this I use this example more as an opportunity to um, tell us what a vision board is real quick Um, so a vision board would be um, a collection of photos that you maybe Photoshop together or pictures that you found on the internet that show all of your dreams that's you in a scuba diving suit. That's you in a Ferrari. That's you in front of a big house. That's you in front of your own chat, um, eighteen kids and three wives. And that's, that's a vision board. And then you would look at that vision board every morning, and you would kind of like ah, oh, that's going to be my life. And then you see those stories. And vision boards have been very have become very popular since the. The Secret, the the movie as well as the book, Mm -hmm. and people telling these magic stories of how they had this vision board and one day they realized that they bought exactly that house and they bought exactly that car and they married exactly that woman. And then people think like, oh, I need a vision board, like that's what I need. Um, And this is one of those things that's just completely counterproductive um, because it's just a small piece of the entire goal setting puzzle. Um, Vision boards are usually extremely unrealistic. And they don't come with a step by step plan on how to do that. It's bas- they, they're basically wishful thinking. That's that's all they are. And um, so you look you look into something that's that's, for example, called mental contrasting and implementation intentions. So those would be the kind of the scientific um, counterparts to that. Mental contrasting is the idea of this is where I want. This is what I'm lacking right now, and this is what, how I get there. So it's bringing much more pieces into the puzzle. Um, this goes back to, to actually a German lady called Gabrielle Oettingen, I believe. And um, implementation intentions are another piece of that puzzle. And that say that if X happens, I'll do Y. If I feel like smoking, then I'll do 10 sit-ups. If I feel like eating junk food, then I will do this. If my boss... Um, talks talks down at me, then I'll say. So those are very if then implementation intentions. And you bring in you bring in things like that. And now I do realize that we've gone like miles away from the initial question, which I've already forgotten at this it point. It doesn't matter, I've forgotten it too. Go ahead. <laughs> good, good. It's this is always this is always the trick. Once you realize coach, coach insider, um once you realize you forgot the question, you just keep talking and then you come back. And at that point, the other person will have forgotten the question as well. So the trick is to just keep talking.
0: Right. Pretend like you know exactly, exactly. what you're doing.
1: Exactly. A lot of good arguments are ruined by people who know what you're talking about. Um, yeah. So that's that's basically the, the have, goal setting versus goal setting fantasy versus goal setting done. Have Different you uh, studied much about the default mode network? Yeah. This is so fascinating. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, in the sense of, uh, and I, you know, dabble a little bit in it, and, you know, there's obviously a lot of books and a lot of research out there now about, um, you know, sh- if you can shut down the default mode network, either through meditation, or now it's through drugs, right, microdosing, hmm. psilocybin and some other things, then it opens up the opportunities, right, opens up your creativity, opens up, you know, allows what's kind of in your unconscious to, to prosper,
1: Let's talk about the um, default mode network for for those of you listeners who are not familiar with it. So this is a really new finding. I think it was the beginning. Of, it was like two thousand something something that, that this was actually found out. And the the way that they found it out, I want to say either Judson Brewer or Paul Gilbert, but I com- might be completely wrong about that. Is they did studies where they they tested people in in meditation. And they put it, them into fmri machine, so they could or something like an fmri machine so they could like specifically see if their kind of thinking part of their brain was working right now or if they were mm-hmm. properly meditating um, and the idea was that if they're probably meditating this thing here would shut down it wouldn't be doing anything so they told people to lie in the machine and then they told them um, just for just so that we can calibrate this machine just don't do anything for a bit just don't just don't do anything And then they saw, like, there's a lot of stuff going on. Like, all the dials went, like, wild. It's like, no, no, dude, you you have to do nothing. Like, you're supposed to do nothing right now. And then they found out that the moment you don't really do anything, your default mode network kicks in. And your default mode network will primarily um, tell you your self-story. This is who you are. This is who you've always been. This is what you always do. Um, It will... Most of the time, it will be in the past or the present. Fifty um, percent of our waking hours are spent in the past or the present, and the default mode network is, you know, a huge contributor to that. So, the the idea is that if if you can kind of shut down the system, then that typical rumination, that typical you know worrying about the future, ruminating about the past stuff, is is kind of gone. Um, at the same time, however, and, and, and there are studies that show that if you practice meditation, you learn to quieten your default mode network as well. Mm-hmm. However, the default mode network is also that thing when you're in the shower or you're going for a walk and you don't think about anything, you suddenly find a solution to a problem you had. Because that's kind of its job, it runs in the background, like on you know, your Windows computer when there's background tasks that kind of kick in when nothing is happening. I didn't know that. I thought it was
0: actually somewhat the opposite in the sense of uh, because the default mode network doesn't uh, resides in your prefrontal cortex, right? And, and I may be completely wrong, but I was just Same Same and so, and so we could be both completely wrong. <laughs> I mean, someone we're not, listening to this and goes right. like, Oh, what are these guys talking? Yeah, about we're not scientists. Place. But I had, I, because one, well, So as I understood it, that these aha moments, what you're talking about, that are in your unconscious, that is the, by shutting down the default mode network, it allows these aha moments to come up with more regularity. And so, you know, just listening to, you know, I think uh, Tim Ferriss is involved in, you know, uh, some of the microdosing psychedelic research. And, you know, all these alleged billionaires who are microdosing, um, and again, I don't think it's there's no uh, hallucinations or any kind of you're not, you know, getting a buzz, so to speak. But it is enough that it's just on the default mode network that allows these aha moments to come from your unconscious is kind of where they're ruminating. And to your point being that the, you know, time, uh, either the past or the present, you know, all of that resides in our, with our default mode network and the unconscious past
1: future. Plus the future. The present past, Present yeah, is sorry, exactly not, past and not future. There.
0: You're right. And then it's the unconscious that is that doesn't recognize time, and so there is. I mean, if you, I'm I'm kind of I'm probably gonna get way ahead of my skis here, but I know like uh, Eckhart Tolle and
1: those that type of.
0: Uh, the, not
1: not a fan of Eckhart Tolle. Probably... Well, you know
0: well, the 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 philosophy of um, that. Uh, I think I was listening to something the other day where they said how uh, you know he's kind of. I'm really, really paraphrasing here, but almost kind of like you can shut time out because you know you're not focused on the past, which is generally depression and anxiety being the future, Mm -hmm. and he's just kind of present, and it allows this kind of you know transcendental experience, Um, and that's as much as I know about Eckhart Tolle, Mm -hmm. but uh, anyways, the the reason I ask is because I've uh, you know when we're talking about a lot of these things that. Um, that get in our way back to your point about the social things it's us right it's our thoughts it's something's going it's our impression of what's going to happen yeah in the future the anxiety of when I approach this person and ask for a selfie that they're going to react in some negative way that's going to make me feel stupid or embarrassed mm-hmm. or whatever it may be and by you know tamping those things those things down. And I don't know if those things come from the default mode network or not. Maybe they do a little bit because it's kind of what you experienced in the past, mm-hmm. um, that allowing your unconscious to, uh, well, sorry, let me step back, getting rid of these or, or tamping down these thoughts that hold us back, allow the, the, uh, more creative aspects, the, the aha moments and the like, to, to come up. And those are the things that we hear about or we think about in the shower or as we're, you know, going for a walk or something like that. Um, and anyways, it's fascinating to me because, you know, especially when you hear about, you know, this is the the thing that people are spending lots and lots of money on and you hear about the psilocybin and the ayahuasca trips and stuff like that now you also
1: hear about some really negative things that happen as well yeah well there's there seems to be a lot of research that is happening there at the moment massive um and i hear from uh, therapists that i'm working together with that they're getting more and more into this as well Uh, i don't have any experience with it except for no um getting getting my hands on a few studies that use like these these substances um in in microdosing or sometimes even like not not microdosing, but actual like, like real doses, like they do like once or twice, in, in supervision together with a therapist. Um, the a real thing, dose in the sense of like you actually have a psychedelic yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, the real mm-hmm. the real thing. And the important thing, however, here for for all our listeners is that you do those things um, together with a therapist. So you don't just buy a bunch right. of ma- mushrooms in the next subway station and then come home and pop them. Uh, that's not going to give you the same experience. That, no, I, I think it needs
0: to be guided. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, buy you, need to, you need to
1: have a trained therapist by your side who then helps you while you're in that experience, helps you kind of work through your shit. Mm-hmm. So you open the doors to whatever there is. And then with the guided um, help of that, of that professional, you would actually then work, work through this.
0: Right. And apparently the same can be done through meditation, right? You can, you can get to the same state, maybe not as quickly, mm-hmm. unless you're a Buddhist monk or someone who's, you know, trained to get into that particular state. Um, but, uh, you know, there are certainly drug-free ways of doing it. And there's a lot of research, well, not a lot. I've heard some things about, uh, you know, working with soldiers who have PTSD mm. uh, through things like uh, trance and hypnotherapy where they are, you know, through that process that they can kind of bring the default mode network down some to which, you know, uh, uh, apparently where a lot of this trauma, you know, from the the uh, the cause of PTSD is residing and maybe the negativity that, that stems from that and bring that down and allow the you know basically the unconscious to
1: to I mean for lack of a better term come in and help out hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not too familiar with the workings of of the the unconscious um I know that um the the training that that we do is also used in um, PTSD settings in the, mm-hmm. in, in the military. I know that it's it's very effective there. Um, I
0: exposure therapy, you mean uh, no
1: um, acceptance commitment therapy and looking okay. into um, PTSD from from that standpoint and kind of dissecting the story that their their mind is telling them and then um, kind of learning ways of tying that into values and taking it away from those limiting thoughts. Um, but I'm not. I'm not trained as a therapist, so I would not work with someone who specifically wants to get over post-traumatic stress syndrome. Right. Because the moment, in general, I wouldn't work with someone to to get over shit that they need a therapist for, because I'm yeah. not a therapist. I do right. have I do have training in um, cognitive behavioral therapy, but I'm not a therapist. And uh, for for all of those people that I work with that come into my coaching groups. I would beforehand make sure that they're actually doing that to get from okay to good or from okay to great but not from something needs to be worked out here so that i'm okay
0: not or yeah. not from something absolutely horrible
1: to, yes they yeah they, they don't come from from a oh, it's the right it's so easy to cross lines here when you play with words like that um they don't come into this with a mental disorder right. hoping that. Adding some confidence and social skills on top of it is going to make their um, borderline personality disorder or their narcissistic disorder or, you know, anxiety disorder go away. It's like, no, uh, I'd love to work with you, but first you need to see a therapist. And that's actually something that happens quite a lot where people would see a therapist for quite a while, work through the the issues and then say, you know what, I actually want to keep growing. I want to keep working on this. And then the (laughs) therapist says, well, you know, technically you're... Out of here in my eyes here you're okay and then they come to us and they work basically from okay to great adding adding that other stuff on, on top of things
0: so do you find have you found uh, that you've had clients to come who've had faced some you know more serious issues and but have reached a level of health uh, mental health that is you know that they're mentally
1: healthy and then come to you yeah yeah that, to... that happens that happens quite a lot okay. uh, that people say look i've been I've been struggling with this anxiety disorder for all my life it helped me back at work and dating family life um, my entire like my life was a piece of shit Mm -hmm. and then i i finally went to therapy i did this i've been through you know extensive therapy and now i have everything in order i'm I'm kind of okay but i still don't have friends i'm still not dating and i'm still unemployed now it's time to build and i need i need some skills on top of that to get me get me out of this and to get the and here's the cool thing once people realize how much they can change their life if they just do the right stuff it's like they get addicted to it and they just want to keep going and they see that there's more possible and they set new goals and then they aim higher and higher and and once once they see that they have this self efficacy that they can take things into their own hands and make things happen that's uh, that's beautiful to see um, but here, here's something else that's, that's really interesting for, to me and that has been quite... I think that was the most eye-opening um, revelation to me last, last year. Working with... So I've been doing this for four years now. And seeing that... So the first session when no one knows each other, we come together over video, um, everyone sees each other for the first time, we introduce ourselves...
0: So real quick, exciting route, but tell me a little bit about the, the, is this a, this is a one to many, so you're coaching? Yes, a group. I, okay.
1: I coach, I coach a group of um, up to 10 people. Okay. And it's, it's, and it's everybody can see each other on yeah. the video. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're using Zoom so you can see each other, hear each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we, so just to do this uh, really, really briefly. So it's, it's an eight week course. We get mm-hmm. together for two hours um, once a week and in that in those 2 hours first we do a check in to make sure everyone um, did their air quotes homework did their exercises did their worksheets find out what they struggled with what they what they learned because that's where the entire group can kind of learn from each other and no one has to you know make the same mistakes if you can learn it from someone else or insights and then in the second part we go into uh, material so at the beginning We we talk about dealing with difficult thoughts, difficult emotions, changing your self story around. Um, Then we go into um, social training, building a network, building a social circle, conversation skills, storytelling, humor, assertiveness. And then to wrap up the course, we work on goals and values so that they know why they're actually working on that stuff. Because in the end, social skills and confidence are a little bit like a really cool sports car. Uh, but if you don't know where you mm. want to drive with that thing, it just sits in your garage. So why do you have it? But the moment you, know, you say, okay, you know what, I need like a faster engine. I need more horsepowers. I need this cool paint job because I'm going to ride this thing to Las Vegas. Now, you know, now it's like, that's why you built this. That's why you have it, but not so that it sits in the garage. So being clear on why you do that stuff is so crucially important because remember gas pedal and brake pedal and, and that's, the, that's gas.
0: So, so when you say being clear, so you're having your clients being clear on why they're doing what they're doing. Is that what you mean? Yeah. And what is the process to, I assume everybody's got a different reason. Right? Of yeah. those 10 people, everybody's got a different reason. So what's the process to help them get clarity on why they're actually sitting in this group chat with you?
1: oh that oh they know that the moment they they paid for the course and they got their login details and then they know what they why they're there um and it's always going to be either around i want to build my confidence i want to build my social skills um and it it would be for work it would be for social life it would be for dating it would be I'm moving to a new place i don't know anyone and my my favorite um is actually you know what i've had so much pain for so long i've had it it can't get worse. I want to work on this. And those are, when I say those are my favorite cases, I don't mean that in a statistical manner, but a good question to ask someone who goes through a transformative process like this, because it's, it's hard work, no magic formula. No, this is hard work. Um, a good question to ask them is that, is, have you had enough pain yet? Is it, you know, is it bad enough? And they say, you know what? It's bad enough. I can't, one of, one of my, Clients, um, the previous group on ha- on Thanksgiving, he told me, you know, it's Thanksgiving and no one invited me. Like I've had enough. I don't want this anymore. A person like that, they will move. They don't. They don't. They don't care. Like, they move. They do whatever it takes to to make change happen.
0: So in that example, that's a really interesting example. I'm sure that that's not unique, right? A lot of people, yeah, are lonely.
1: A lot of people and are. It's it's scary. It's um, if if you were if you were to be born tomorrow and you sit up there, you know, in the delivery station in up in heaven or whatever, and someone were to ask you, you know, you can't choose uh, in which country you're born. You can't choose your parents. But what you can choose is the time in which you're born. You have exactly one 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 best answer. And that's today. I want to be born today because everything is as good as it ever was Um, prosperity um health longevity everything is on, you know on the top of the charts except for lone- there's loneliness and there's anxiety and it's worse than ever before
0: yeah there's a, a lot of people i think that are suffering from this and i think um you know, there's isn't there a netflix special on japanese men who are shut-ins essentially there's a whole population a whole culture of men yeah, who I, basically shut dis- themselves up dis- dis- in their apartment right yeah. And are completely alone, except for you know, an online. Here, here's the interesting
1: thing. So never in my life um, have I worked with a Japanese person. Um, I had one at a meetup, and I was super excited about this. And he said, you know what, this stuff wouldn't fly in my country. Like it, it, because the, Why you know, not? Because their, their social um, protocols are so different from ours that the stuff that I'm training people to be would be out of place in Japan. You mean socially unacceptable? Yes. Um, interesting. In what way? Um, well, assertiveness. I mean, you know, even if you, if even if you don't agree with the other person at all, and if you think they're the most horrible person on, on the planet, you'd still say hi, 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 hi. Oh, yeah, really interesting. You know? and, okay. And I've I've been um, in in Japan a few years ago over the winter, and I realized, yeah, uh, this is such a the the culture is so. Um, they have they have such strict this is just how you do it. And if if you do it in any formal manner differently, uh, it's just like there's this little filter over you that, you know, you just you're not just you're just not being seen. You're a persona non, non grata, but I'm really not not a specialist in, in that. Um, but anyway, I, I wanted to come back to this big, big insight that I had um, last year. So in the first session everyone introduces themselves and everyone's coming from a little they all want to work on the same thing but they come from different backgrounds so some of them are college students some of them just got divorced and they need to get back and they need to get their life in order Um, some are coming out of the military and what's so amazing for me to see and I mean this in the the best way possible is that everyone is struggling with something it gets everyone in the first session everyone says I can't believe I'm not the only one they look around like I thought you know, I thought I was the only one. I was like, no, everyone. And I had... Like, when you say struggling with something...
0: So anxiety-wise, anxiety-wise. Anxiety-wise, confidence-wise. Okay.
1: Um, I had, like, special forces guys that for the entire life, like, jumped out of helicopters and, you know, did stuff like that. And then you put them into a social setting and they're terrified. I had um, actors and actresses who were anxious because they were thought they weren't beautiful enough and not good enough. Um... There were college kids who at the age of 19 were anxious about the fact that they don't have their life together yet and then there were 50 year olds who were anxious because their family just broke apart and they don't know and the beautiful thing here is the first thing i try to get out of the mind of those guys is that anxiety is a part of life um, it's it's their pain is a part of life um, you'll never be able to do anything meaningful without having anxiety about it and and that's a good thing because if you're not anxious about something you don't care like how, how horrible would it be to go through life and not caring Like I can go to the supermarket and buy pickled cucumbers and I wouldn't have anxiety because I don't care if they don't have pickled cucumbers I'll go to another shop um, but put me into a workshop or Uh, where I'm up on stage and I deliver a message that's important to me, and I get anxious. Why? Because it's important. When I'm up there on stage, it's my job to get that message across. And if I don't, all of those people listening, they'll not get my message. And that makes me anxious. And that's that's good, because that shows me that I care. Um, Kelly Wilson said that whenever you do something new or something important, then anxiety is the price that you pay for admission.
0: Mm -hmm. So you said that everybody comes with something and you gave some examples of the fifty-year-old, who's um, I don't remember what you said. Maybe the, the wife has left him, and uh, the early twenty-year-old that doesn't have his life or her life figured out. So, obviously, you can't address each and every person's specific anxiety. But mm. does you does your training then by addressing anxiety in general, and maybe the by doing some of these social experiments yeah. and some of these social exercises? that that transfers into the broader anxiety that someone experiences. Is that yeah. how it works? Yeah,
1: exactly. So the it's, it's the basic training. It's um, like um, the military boot camp where, you know, you learn all the basics. And the moment people are able to take their thoughts and their inner critic less seriously and they learn to um, just have their emotions be there, maybe even associate positive feelings with them. Now that I said that anxiety means actually, you know, it's this is important. People can look at their anxiety a little bit differently. So now you you train this with people, um, you give them a theory. Like This is how you deal with thoughts. This is how you deal with difficult emotions. Then you send them out doing those silly experience where they have to get a selfie with a stranger for like this is not a life skill they need, um, mm-hmm. but the life skill they need is the ability to be kind of uncomfortable with the entire situation because their thoughts come up and their emotions come up and they don't want to do it. And then they use all of that stuff that we've trained in class and they you know take their thoughts less seriously and they learn to accept their emotions a little bit. And suddenly they're able to do that behavior, do what matters. And yeah, it's it's the selfie with a stranger. It doesn't right. really matter, but it's the exercise. And, and that's kind of my my training dojo for them. And at one point, they will come back into session and they'll say, you know what? I had this difficult meeting with this coworker who was really rude. And I felt I had a lot of like, difficult thoughts and emotions and I felt really stressed out. And then I realized that felt just like that week where I had to take a selfie with a stranger. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I used exactly the same tools because I've practiced them so much. And I was able to open my mouth and tell that guy, you know, in a respectful manner to shut the fuck up. And that applies once you have those skills in place. um, That applies both to the military guy who's anxious in social settings, to the college guy who doesn't have any friends, to the 55-year-old who needs to start dating again, because it's the thoughts and the emotion that stop people from coming back to my old metaphor to driving to Paris.
0: Right. I think I had heard... uh... Someone I uh, met a while back who uh, I think they also were involved in um, some coaching, but they actually had trained themselves to seek out that cringe. Mm-hmm. You know, the feeling that when you're going up to talk to someone at a bar or you're going to do something social, and that you know, incredible uneasiness that comes over us, the fear of rejection. But through so much repetition and through some other things that they had done, maybe some meditation, that now they, they sought it out. They mm. sought out that negative feeling. And when they would feel that feeling, like, they realized that they were in there, going in the right direction.
1: Yeah. And it's, so it becomes like a game. There's the point. idea of a negative compass. And that means because look, here's here's what we all do. We want to feel good. That's that. So we organize our behavior to what's feeling good. And in the most extreme cases, that leads you to sitting on the couch, eating ice cream, watching Netflix and drinking beer. That's comfortable. That's not life. That's not meaning. Um, But you take all of the things that make you anxious. Dating, going to a party, um, maybe trying out dance classes. You take all of those things where your anxiety kind of points away from. Mm -hmm. And you turn it around you go exactly there. And you're probably doing things that are meaningful to you. Look at at people that um, get anxious in social situations. They don't get anxious because they don't like people. If they didn't like people, they'd live in the desert in a cave. They get anxious because they deeply care about their connection with people, and that's why they get anxious. Yeah. And and so you turn that around. And of course you don't want to, you know, freak yourself out 24-7 by doing all the things that that scare you. But you want to make that struggle with anxiety a little bit little bit of part of your life Um, look at procrastination such a great example whenever I bring this up in class people are like what I thought procrastination is a productivity issue I just need the right app Um, procrastination is an emotional issue because procrastination means I feel kind of uncomfortable doing that so I'll do it in five minutes and then and then I'll do it in five minutes and then I'll do it in five minutes now if you were however able to say I don't want to do that but it's important And I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. Now, procrastination is no longer, you still don't like it. You still don't like doing it. But you're doing it because it's important while at the same time being able to just accept the the little bit of butterflies in the stomach that come along with it.
0: Right. And I've also seen some stuff about um, changing the state that is associated with, to use your example, procrastination. So let's say uh, you don't want to exercise in the morning. So you've tried, you know, setting your running shoes by the bed, so that when you wake up first thing, Mm -hmm. you're looking at your running shoes and they're reminding you. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And but the the original uh, uh, state that you're feeling is dread, uh, Mm -hmm. or whatever it may be. I want to do this, or shame, or whatever. But through. sometimes through meditative work and through other types of work, if you can change the state of that trigger, the trigger being the shoes sitting there when you're waking up or the alarm clock to something of excitement of challenge or whatever it is that drives you, then you can get beyond that. Now that's that there's, that's a whole different
1: discussion on how you get there. Right. Actually, actually, actually not really. Uh, This is, this is a really good example because I actually love to use the running shoes example when I explain the concept to future clients and i tell them if ima- imagine this you want to start this running habit right you get up at five mm. in the morning and it's still dark out there and you you start running and that's just and so you you put your you, you 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 try to get to get in the mindset and to get motivated to get up at five in the morning and to be like you pump yourself up at night and you're like brushing your teeth and you go, like yeah i'm gonna run and then It's five in the morning, your alarm clock goes off and you're like, "Oh fuck this shit, it's it's raining, it's cold, I'm not motivated. And then you ask yourself, how can I get motivated? How could I get motivated? And now you're again in the car being on the passenger seat trying to think the right stuff before you drive to Paris. So I tell them, how about you get up, Um, you don't look for motivation at all, you just grab your shoes and you go for a run. And what happens? You're out there for five minutes and suddenly you're like, Yo, oh, this is actually cool. I enjoy this. Like, this is cool. And that's because our emotions are contingent with our actions. You do something, you feel like it. But if you wait until you feel like it before you do it. Uh, Netflix, ice cream and beer. That's right. You not happy.
0: you're not courageous until you're courageous. Yeah, you
1: need to start with a behavior and then the emotion builds up. Right. But we've been um, so indoctrinated in our culture that feeling happy and feeling motivated is the solution to everything. It's not. It's the end result. You don't. You don't go. You don't get motivated to go to the gym. You get. You go to the gym to get motivated. And once you flip that switch around, and you say, "I don't want you to be motivated. I want you to not feel like it and do it anyway." And then people say, "Yeah, but you know, what you, you have no idea what I'm, I'm overthinking, and I get so anxious. Like exactly, that's why we did the training." Yeah. So.
0: No, it is interesting. It, again, it, it's a probably a, a much longer discussion, but you know. Going back to the theory of state drives behavior, and the thing is, if you can change the state that is associated with the, the running shoes, the trigger, then you can change the behavior.
1: Now, that's you know, but uh, changing the state is is inherent is is almost impossible. Like if I if would I
0: disagree were, a little bit on that. How, how do you tell, tell me an example? How, how um, would you change the state? Well, some through the uh, the from what I'm reading on the the microdosing. Being able to change the state, uh, hypnot- okay. That's, a hypnot- but that's
1: not really a solution, right? If you're if you're in a in a business meeting and you suddenly get yelled at by your boss and you realize you need a state change, you can't just pop some mushrooms and be like, "Hey, give me give me five oh, minutes. No. Here. I need to microdose. I no, need no, to no, change no. my state." <laughs> that would be convenient, right?
0: Uh, no, and, the, and I'm not an expert on it. But then there are things on hypnotherapy and other types of things where you, know, you go in and um, you you know change the state that is associated with that particular activity or that event and sometimes it's through uh exposure uh, as repetition right so and you know the point being is that the the state of uh absolute fear right of going up and talking to somebody eventually could become a game and fun and that is the state of what
1: here's the point but the state changed before
0: because you did it so often in that example yes but i guess i'm saying is that there are and i'm Again, it's 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 a much longer discussion, but from what I'm reading and understanding, that there are ways uh, to through meditation and some other things, you know, different types of meditation to actually change the state that you have associated with that particular trigger. Um, and again, uh, back to uh, and I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't know that much about it, but certain types of um, meditation they're using with PTSD people to. So, so yeah. looking back at the event happened, right? Whatever event it was that caused that trauma happened. You can't change the past. But what you can change is the the, the state and emotion that, is, that you've tied to it. And if you think about... We do it naturally, right? So if you think about uh, uh, a bad breakup, right? You're, you're 20 years old and you break up with your, your significant other and you're thinking your life's over and it's terrible and you feel like you got kicked in the gut by a donkey and... You know, you're never going to get over it. Well, six months later, it gets better. Three years later, you think, "Oh my God, how could I ever have, mm-hmm. you know, gone out with that person?" So your your body does it naturally. The event is still the same. You broke up, or, or he or she broke your heart, dumped you, made a fool of you. But you, the emotion that you have tied to it, that your is is now different, and maybe it's even laughter or whatever it may be. And so, that's where. uh I'm not sure how I got down this path, but um, but anyways, it's interesting, and there are there is a lot of research on that yeah. now, and, and on how do you how do you create the new neural pathways that allow this um, to to change your state, and then and in fact changing your
1: behavior. Mm. And so so here's so here's what I what I heard you say and I completely agree with that. Um, so you, there are a couple of ways in which you can mediate a state change Um, you do it just so often that you don't care anymore fully agree with that but in that case you first do it and then your state changes because you need to like ask 100 people out before you don't care so so that is actually behavior before state change another way to affect a state change is by reminding you of what's important like the reason a parent gets up at three at night is because the baby cries and it's really important to take care of it so no, I don't care that I have to get up at three in the morning because baby cries question answered like the why's, the the values and the goals and um, there was a third one through things like hypnosis and meditation yeah so I, I kind of want to leave oh no that that's not oh. the one uh, because that that one I I think would require too much work that's not easily accessible um, if you need hyper, um, if if you take the entire, anxious population which is, you know, pretty much all of the Western world and you require mm-hmm. them to either microdose or go through hypnotherapy, you better put it into school because otherwise you don't make it available to the to the white public. What
0: about uh, smoking cessation? I mean there's plenty of celebrities who've said they've stopped smoking in one session of
1: hypnotherapy. It's a bit of a problem with, you know, celebrities um or um well data, I, I data use sets. celebrities as
0: an example because that's all mm-hmm. we hear about, right? We don't hear about the average person who's quit smoking through uh hypnotherapy you hear about the um the celebrities right the celebrities are, oh yeah i went and it was two
1: sessions i used to smoke you know pack so i'm pack. not i'm not familiar enough to admit with hypnotherapy to make a to make a, an assessment there um anecdotal stuff is always problematic um, evidence-based studies are like, one person saying this worked for me um it's not it's not good enough to make it you know to bring something out like that out into the into the white public um so so hypnotherapy maybe it works I maybe, think maybe hypnotherapy in
0: the United States I think it's actually paid for by insurance for smoking cessation because it's that effective hmm, and yeah so and i'm not here to be a proponent of it one way or the other what i 'm doing <laughs> well, is it, after
1: the ad break <laughs> right
0: well i'm just introducing other ideas right and how you how you change the state. And because I think we both agree that changing the state is key, right? Because that whether it's through repetition and experience or through some other means, then that actually changes the behavior or it, cha- it, it, it basically cements that behavior. I
1: would, I would say that changing the behavior is key because the state will take care of itself. Interesting. Um, okay. So the third one, so the first one was repetition second one was goals and values third one is actually present moment present moment awareness and that's where your mindfulness or meditation comes in because like you said um past and future they're the problematic areas the present moment is usually when we are alive and when we do you know the stuff that's important to us and mindfulness is training us exactly that because once you once you um, train mindfulness whether through um, everyday mindfulness practices or dedicated meditation time you get really good at calling your thoughts out. So the average Joe might spend an entire day being angry about that person who cut them off on the highway and they're angry the entire time. And an emotion actually only lasts anywhere between 90 seconds and 120 seconds. That's how long the emotion lasts. Mm -hmm. And now that person would say, no, that's bullshit because I've been angry all day. In fact, I've been angry all week. Well, they reset it. Exactly, you you keep feeding the, the monster. And mindfulness trains you very well to say, oh, look at that. I'm thinking about the guy who cut me off on the highway again right now. I'll just let that go Pass that thought pass. And and so pre- present moment awareness is something that helps you to identify those thoughts and emotions. And it also reminds you of those values and goals. All of that being in the present moment, the only time when action is actually happening, so that's that's a powerful tool towards um, state, not change, but at least a little bit of modification in there to okay. make you in the right I direction.
0: Good. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to be selfish and steer us back into resilience. Yes. Um, and that uh, we seem to have veered far away. Well, I, I guess the topic is is uh, broadly covered. Uh, and I'm selfishly doing this because I have two young children and I'm always, uh, or I'm thinking a lot about how do I teach them resilience? And dating myself that, uh, I remember, you know, when I was much, much younger, the, the, the ways that you would get, uh, kind of, uh, bullied with words was if something, somebody wrote something bad about you in the bathroom on the wall. Mm -hmm. And the only way that you knew that it was there is if you actually went into that stall and saw it, or someone said, Hey, did you see what someone wrote about you on the wall? And, you know, and then there's your, your kind of, uh, uh, you're, you're bullying with words uh, written words nowadays of course it's all online right everybody's getting bullied and everybody's and there's all kinds of problems with uh, with online bullying mm. and it's just going to get worse right as technology continues to proliferate there's going to be more and more ways to cause problems for for people mm. right Yeah. and so my thought was to my kids like well I can't stop the technology and you can't and we, we can create laws for online bullying but It's still going to happen, right? And so how do you make your child resilient in the sense of when they're faced with these types of things, and I'm using online bullying as an example, but certainly, Mm. you know, face to face bullying or other types of setbacks that they have, or if they're playing soccer and, you know, they're the worst kid on the team and they always, you know, how do you develop that resilience? And so uh, as someone who's a coach and has dealt with people with, you know, a variety of, um, um, issues that they're working with. I'd love to get your your input on that.
1: Yeah, bull- man, bullying is is really close to my heart. Um, I was bullied a lot in in school. Um, I grew up in a small village in in the border to Bavaria, and I had my my friends there. I grew up with them. They knew about my disability. They knew that back then I was still walking and running around. I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the strongest. But my condition hadn't progressed to a point where I needed a crutch or a wheelchair. So I was out with with the kids and my friends all knew me they knew Michael wasn't that that strong they took care of me and then when I was 12 my mom got remarried and we moved to a different village um, an hour away from where I used to live and I was completely it was a horrible time I didn't know anyone Um, I was deeply ashamed of not being air quotes normal Um, I didn't want to admit to it and it was still at a point where I was able to kind of hide it Uh, by not taking part in sports by not playing soccer people would realize that i walk a little bit funnily but they wouldn't know that i have a disability which was something i was deeply ashamed of and and so that entire thing like spiraled completely out of control and i got i got bullied a lot uh, not because of my disability funnily enough but because of my insecurity which was triggered by my my disability and that really Haunted me throughout my my teenage years until I went to university.
0: What do you, when you say bully because of your insecurity? What what
1: do you mean? Well, it's a little bit like I'm not an expert on bullying, but with my own experience, it feels like um, kids are not very calibrated in their social behavior, but they have a sense for self-esteem. Like they want to feel cool, they want to be they want to be the coolest kid in the block. That's a good point. And there are a couple of ways in which you can raise your self esteem, and one is like you know create world peace. The other is by pulling the baseline down and make everyone else feel like shit, and and that's what you know kids do. So instead of myself being like, instead of getting better grades, why don't I take the kid who has really good grades and like you know uh, make him feel like shit, and and with me being so insecure, that certainly didn't help. So I felt I felt I think more victim to this than I I would have. Um, if if I were just you know honest honest with myself and just be be open about stuff. How old were
0: you when this was going on?
1: Um, twelve to um, eighteen, I would say. So so this really... what would you
0: go back to the twelve to eighteen year old Michael and, and yeah, provide this, him this, that would make him there. Resilient? There's no
1: um, I, so here here are the bad news. I don't have a real solution for that because. This is this is a shitty time and i think it's always a shitty time and it's probably was easier for me back then because now like you said we don't just have toilet stalls we have social media and in fact there, there are they're interesting studies that show that so a couple of years ago um, facebook lowered the um the age limit and before you could only get in when you're 18 and now you can kind of get in at i think either it's 12 or you can get in at any age and since they opened this up, um, anxiety level and mental disorders among teenagers skyrocketed. I don't have the I don't have the numbers um, in front of me, but it's a massive number. And it's exactly that same year Facebook opened up like that. So here's the bad news. Like this is a tough time. It's it's a tough time. Um, I wish I had a way of making that stuff go away and have ch- children like go through their childhood happy-go-lucky, but this is this seems to be a part of it. Um, I will, however, say that kids need to know that they can be open with their parents about it and that their parents are more supportive than um, maybe going into justice mode or retribution mode. I'm, I didn't tell my parents because, A, I didn't want them to worry, and B, I didn't want the kid whose parents come to school to tell the other kids off. That would have been even, even worse.
0: Right, I think that's very common. A common fear of children who are getting
1: picked on. Yeah, yeah. and um, I think just with bullying, and again, I'm not an expert on this, um, just the same with behavior or body image in general. The body image of, of children, it's horrible. Like you have 12-year-olds who think they're too fat or too thin or too... It's... Uh, my, my, my little 8-year-old sister says, you know, I need to lose weight. I'm like 30 kilograms. And why what are you even talking about? This is crazy. Um, so so this is something that, that mm-hmm. I learned. Um, and that's to... Uh, this is from Brene Brown as well as a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, empathy. And for example, if... If a kid comes to you and says, you know, I've been, um, I've been, I, I was up on stage and I did this little theater thing and I forgot my line and everyone laughed and you don't want to contradict that and devalidate it. You don't want to say, I oh, don't worry, no one saw it. Don't worry, it's going to be fine. Don't worry, in three years, everything is going to be cool. You want to be the understanding, emphatic um, parent who lets them know that this is actually quite normal and saying, that, "Yeah, you know what this happened to me too. And it was so tough. Or I can imagine that if that happened to me, I would, yeah, this is, this, I'm not going to lie to you. Like this, this stinks. You know, this is, this is tough. So that the kids learn that A, they're understood and B, what they're going through is not desired, but kind of normal. It's normal part of the human experience to be, uh, to, to fail at an exam or to yep. be bullied. And, and And I think everybody is, I, we all we've all
0: said this to ourselves to our friends like my goodness if I knew everybody was so anxious and you know insecure in high school then I could have ruled high school because you could have been the one that's like I know everybody's secret and it's that they're all terrified you know, even they're, even the
1: popular people whatever it may be yeah, and but I, they're also stronger which is the problem in high school yeah
0: well and it, it's interesting when, as I'm listening to you say this that uh, it, that you know sometimes you just have to go through it because it is a, it is a difficult time for everybody. And maybe that I mean when I came, when I asked you my original question about resilience in children. You know, I'm thinking, how do you these things all happen? How do you make it, or how do you help coach your child in the sense that it's not that it kind of rolls off them, right? Or they can recover quickly. And maybe I would be worried about
1: that. Like if if it rolled, if they got bullied by their peers, by the people they spend a huge part of their day and years with if they didn't care what they were thinking that would actually be probably more problematic because there there are only very few people out there that don't feel anxiety and they don't care what people think about them and they just you know purely are driven by by logic and their goals and their they're called psychopaths and no no yeah
0: i understand what you're saying and it's and let, but, let me elaborate a little bit so um, the way I look at that is there's a difference. There's definitely a difference between not caring what other people think. You're right. Everybody does. And the people who say they don't are lying or, or are psychopaths, like you said, sociopaths. But there is a how, resilience and how do you get over it quickly, right? How do you bounce back? So when someone says something negative or you read something on the bathroom wall, to, for the earlier example, how do you not dwell on it? And and bounce back because these things are going to happen throughout your entire life, yeah. right? And we, and even I think the most zen of us uh, will, you know, have certainly moments of anger, frustration, fear, hatred, all the things that mm-hmm. because we're all human. But the question is, how, do you does do you let it get drilled
1: into your your your, your, your psyche, yeah, or do I you know, are know. you able
0: to get to move on?
1: So. Here's what I would have told my my younger self back then. Um, They they hurt people, hurt people, hurt people, hurt people like no one is going to be cruel to another kid if they don't carry some pain or um, if they're not happy, if if they're completely happy with their own life, they wouldn't bother hurting other people that they would not they do that because um, they don't feel enough the the next thing I would tell them is that if they make fun of your name or your nose or your uh, whatever it's because they couldn't find anything else to make fun of that that if they can only make fun of the fact that their last name is Schnufflepoops that's the only thing they have and it's not even your fault that your last name is Schnufflepoof you're kind of you're kind of you're kind of off the hook um, I would also tell them that the most powerful move that you can do is to just laugh at them and not care, not engage in a fight. Just, just not care. There's a beautiful um, YouTube video. forgot the name of the guy. He is so brilliant. He re- deserves remembering that does bullying training with children. And I, I'll, I'll email you the, the link. And he says that bullying is actually something that's just, simply been known as dominance behavior for you know most of in adults it's dominance behaviors in children it's just called Mm -hmm. bullying and he demonstrates this beautifully with a teenage volunteer on stage where he tells her to just bully him and he would you know work with it and all he does is he leans into the bullying and when she says to him you're so stupid he's like yeah you're right sometimes i do stupid things and, you know, you're you're ugly. And I was like, yeah, it's my, I think my nose is a little big. And he just, you know, he, he doesn't punch back. He's just like water swinging with the entire thing. And it's beautiful to watch. And it's really disarming. But it's also, all of the things that I've said make sense to us in our adult brain. But look at a not quite fully developed. I mean, the prefrontal cortex is fully developed at around 25. Whereas the amygdala which is kind of responsible for your fear and your emotions is developed from birth so it's it's kind of tricky to go back to a 12 year old and say this is how you do it and uh, just don't you know just just don't take it personally it's just about your name
0: try telling a 12 year old how to do anything and it doesn't work <laughs> yes they will not listen to you
1: that's just the way it is yeah um i i know um yeah this is
0: I have a um, a theory on something. So again, back to on, my, something. I'm, just just about, on anything. It's like just some random thing. I'm just thinking out. Yeah, it. exactly. Uh, uh, on uh, so resilience, not really a theory, kind of a tool. I'm I'm trying to think about back to my question about teaching my boys about resilience. I love to teach lessons with uh, movies because movies are awesome. And mm. The
1: Matrix is an awesome movie, right? And my favorite movie. Yeah, it's awesome. I can, st- I can still. I think I can still. I could dub the entire movie from beginning to end. I can just talk every every single line. And it still carries water today. Because yeah. It's got to be how many years old now? 20 years? 1998, I'm going to say.
0: 1999. Wow. 20, over 20 years old. It's yeah. still awesome. But so and, and I'm just, I've been trying to formulate how when the time comes to talk to my kids. About They're too young to watch The Matrix at the moment. You're never but, too young to watch that. No, you're right. You're well, right. I you're mean,
1: right. no, not, not, it, no, not the Matrix. As cool as it is, some things are better.
0: So, uh, although now everything's so violent that the Matrix is, you know, tame. But uh, it's... So, you know, one of the most powerful things that, that we have uh, in, in our um, capabilities is words, right? Mm-hmm. As we're talking now, words can really do a lot of damage mm-hmm. to somebody. They can do a lot of... Uh, really wonderful things by telling someone how wonderful they are that you love them or all the you know, the, the things that make people feel good. And uh, however, they are only as powerful as you allow them to be right back to your point about bullying and some other things that they are just words and it's up to you the receiver how powerful they are. So I, I remember that the, the, you know, the scene in the matrix at the end when uh, Neil gets shot and he dies. Right? The first mm-hmm. Matrix. Oh, you just spoiled it. You yeah. should have said spoiler alert. Right, spoiler alert. <laughs> Anybody not seen the Matrix, then I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. But uh, Get lost on so poor people. Right, so he gets shot and he's dead. And then we, we don't know what's going on in his head, but at some point he realizes that it's all fake. Right. It's the Matrix. And the bullets, which I uh, equate as the harmful words, now he can see it. And now he can just sees them and looks at them. And I go, oh, here are, the bull- here are the bullets coming at me. And I think about how I would tell my boys, my like, all right, so the bullets, those are the words. And you can just see them coming at you, and there they are. And then they just drop. And then, of course, in the, the follow-on Matrix movies, he's gotten much better at it. He can just put his hand out, and bullets are just dropping mm-hmm. all the time. I think, yeah. And then, and then that leads me into more things. I think the Matrix is a wonderful uh, uh, tool to use to, to, to uh, raise children. Aside from, I mean, yeah. aside from resilience, there's, there's other you know, choices in life, the red pill, the blue pill. It, it definitely
1: scares them from popping pills. So. Right.
0: And uh, do you choose hard work and misery or, or do you just take the, I don't remember, yeah. the blue one. And, and don't, don't forget about leather suits.
1: Also and very important.
0: Leather suits and dusters. Don't yeah. forget about long dusters. Duster. So we had a little bit of a technical difficulty there and lost some power, but we are
1: back. With even more power than before.
0: So I think we left off with uh, my saying that the matrix was a useful tool for all of life's problems and issues. So I can leave it at that. Michael, you wanted to mention something
1: about the boy crisis. Yeah. So there's this very, very good book out by Warren Farrell called The Boy Crisis. And a point that he makes there is that in, in this day and age, boys or children in general are usually raised by their mothers or by, by females in general, whether that be kindergarten school um and so on so this has led to here's the thing like what dads um mine certainly did what dads used to do back in the day was they would just roughhouse with their kids and they would wrestle and they would make fun and they'd call them out on being a sissy and stuff like that and um kids were kind of used to that roughhousing and they saw it as a uh, it's 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 just something they were used to you know if if your you, your dad is going to make a little bit fun of you and all you do is t- turn around and you ignore it and you practice with that and today mm-hmm. if even if dad's still do that you can be you can rest assured that the mom is going to turn around says you can't talk with your son like that how dare you like you're wrestling you you're, you're going to hurt him poor poor little kid and so so these these kids grew up in a, a protective environment and then you throw them into their into the the wilderness aka school and suddenly you know they they experience predators for the first time so that's not to say that you need to wrestle with your kids and and and, you know insult them um but every once in a while like bringing this in in a playful manner and i remember you know i was i had to smile at this when i thought back to it during our little technical break here um i my i have a lot of Uh, little siblings there anywhere from eight to 21. And I think it's it's five of them. No, my brother. So thirty one from eight to thirty one years old. Um, You have
0: five siblings so six of you total in your family?
1: I think six. Yeah, I I always need to count when someone asks me for the number. But let's say it's six. Uh, It's one half brother and then a bunch of foster children that um, come in for a short time. And then for um, reasons that I don't understand, just stay until they're they're grown up. And so yeah, so plenty of kids in the house, and we would I would just always make fun with them. And I remember this one moment where my little sister, she was maybe like six at the time, and and she picked up one of my action figures. It looked like a you know monster with like boils and big eyes and all the like horrible monster thing. And and she sh- shows it to me, and I said, "Hey, look at that! He looks like you." And she looks at me, and she's like, "No, she looks like he looks like my brother." You know, instead of going, "Ah, you're so mean," it was like she instantly like trudeau style like, turned that around, and that's because she got so much stuff fired her way, not in a mean way, but in a playful kind of bantering way.
0: Well, that's resilience, right? I believe those types of things are teaching resilience. Yeah, yeah you
1: you teach a thicker skin over right. over time. Yeah,
0: I remember there was a when my first when my wife was pregnant with her our first son, we were reading a book. I don't remember which it was one of the popular books out about raising kids. And one of the the things that uh, this author said is... What do you mean,
1: like, racing kids? I mean, they're they're not really fast in they're born anyway. uh, Raising. Okay.
0: Uh, So not racing. Although my kids do race. I I just saw
1: you with a preambulator, like, running as fast as you can because you read this book on raising kids. Hey, you got to pay the bills, right? So, uh, uh,
0: but one of the things that he said was extremely important in the development of a child is um, sarcasm. And being sarcastic, really? Yeah, and being sarcastic with your child and teaching them sarcasm, and you know, of course, whenever I think of sarcasm, I think of British humor.
1: I think of passive aggressive, non assertive, um, well, and
0: and uh, and being able to, uh, well, yes, anything to the extreme, right, could could be negative. But I thought about it, and so, you know, it's and you know, now I enjoy a fun banter with my children in a sarcastic way. And that, uh, and so they get it. One, I guess there's a to be able to understand sarcasm. You know, to there's a I guess a different part of the mind that's developing when you're yeah, saying something that you actually certainly mean.
1: advanced linguistics to understand sarcasm. Yeah,
0: right. So, so you're you're saying essentially the opposite of what you yeah. mean,
1: right? In an aggressive way, uh, potentially. I like put tomatoes on my pizza. I love them. Thank you. Right, and love it can it can be nasty, of course.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, but I mean the same thing. Wrestling with your kids can get nasty, but. To if you use it in the the uh, in the proper way, and again, I'm not a child raising expert, but I remember him saying that. And it, it is a bit of and what it, the sarcasm has led to in our family is that we're we can poke fun at each other in a joking way, and we laugh about it mm-hmm. in the sense of, um, so you know, hoping that you know, my hope is that when my children are in school, and the second someone pokes fun at them, now all bets are off when kids go to school because it's such a social you know pressure yeah, cooker
1: just throw them in there and you hope for the best right
0: but at least that they can um they can banter at least mm. and be able to be able to banter and take it and give it and understand that when you know like you said it's kind of a a, a verbal jujitsu right mm. in the sense of I, I won't let it bother me but i'll come right back at you and so I, I see that as resilience, and to your point about I've I've heard the same thing about wrestling with boys like boys there is a physicality that is necessary mm-hmm. between the father and the son to teach them like
1: when when does it get dangerous It's like dogs playing like, Yes, you know this is this is how far you can go and that's fine Correct but That's and then don't be a sissy when something you know something happens and Right,
0: and it's okay well, to tussle It's mm-hmm. okay to to get and, yeah and so, and, and those are, I believe those are resilience things. I haven't read the book that you mentioned. I've heard about it. I think it's been talked about a lot, but it definitely sounds, you know, it kind of goes to the, uh, you know, other people's theories or philosophies and, or, or talks that you hear about where we're kind of softening up a little bit too much, you know, in the sense of, and when you're soft, you're not really resilient, right? Can you be at the same time? I don't know. But, uh, You know, I I don't know the answer to it, but as a father, it's something that's constantly on my mind because I think that's the best way you're going to, you know, someone's going to be able to, to, uh, withstand some of the challenges in life is being able to, okay, it may set you back, but you know, don't let it utterly destroy you and you'll, you can get over it.
1: There's, there's one thing and, um, I don't, I don't have any kids, at least not that I know of, um. But I've I've heard so many good things about kids going to martial arts uh, because they release energy, but they also learn to be physical in a safe manner and to, you know, get punched a little bit here and there and, and roll with it. Um, it's um, and, and that is specifically in regards to a mixed martial arts and not, none of that choreographed stuff where you just you know, high okay. a lot and, and move around. Um, but where you actually you know there's a little bit of punching involved um, because that also makes you just more courageous less fear resistant um, and, and builds up your resilience in, in so many ways because once you can hold yourself up to someone on on a on a mat and know that you know you're gonna walk out of this um, that just gives you a big boost for for life in general
0: it makes total sense right I imagine that the the fear, you know, before you get in your first fight, the fear is getting punched, right? Actually, I'm sure, you know, maybe your hundredth fight, you're still the fear of getting punched. But once you've experienced, it's kind of back to where we started this, you know, over an hour ago in the sense of exposure and exposing yourself to it. And uh, so, yeah, I I totally agree with that. uh, I've also heard that, you know, team sports are supposed to be really good Mm. for kids, Mm. especially team sports that are a little bit, Tougher on kids, such as football, American football, or something like that, because not only do you have the the physicality, the extreme physicality that you mentioned, but also the you're relying on others. You have yeah. to you have yeah. to work together. You
1: have to work in a team. And of course, there's bullying coming in there as well. There's again, a lot but... of
0: right, and and you know, if you think back uh, many many years ago, I worked for the
1: fire department. And oh yeah, that's a very good example. Um, Warren Farrell actually makes makes a very good example about this in his book, "The Boy Crisis," and he writes that. Um, firefighters uh, just like uh, military guys they were they, they don't pull punches they make fun of each other to ridiculous it is levels brutal Br- brutal but here's the reason if we're working together as firefighters and i need to know that if i'm in danger you have my 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 back you can't be a sissy if if i tell if i if i call you a funny name and you start crying you're not going to have my back when we're in the house fighting a fire together yeah. so that's where this constant testing is happening it's a it's a badge of honor more than it is um, a means of pulling the other person down.
0: There is, and the, the I mean, it was a, it was a great. Was, I did it many years ago. It was a great job, you know, because you basically get to hang out with your buddies, and uh, uh, periodically go out and break stuff or save somebody, right? So it's. Well, do you like firefighter calendars? Well, no, I was not. <laughs> no, but uh, and the good news is everybody likes to see you, right? Because generally, when you show up, someone's in trouble, or you go to schools and you put on things for kids. But when you're a police officer, it's not always the same. Some, not everybody wants to see you, especially the people that have, that have done something bad. Well, but which is basically all of us. Like I feel guilty whenever I see a police. officer. I, I think we, we, know we all I... do. But w- what it was is about. Uh, it was not a kind word was ever said, and it's just absolute brutal. Like one-upmanship of how do you, how do I give a more devastating verbal blow hmm. to somebody that you know, and it's just. And it gets to the point where nothing bothers you anymore, and you, you expect it, and it almost, and I think it, it gets got to the point where you know if people weren't picking on you, then maybe they don't like me, mm-hmm. you know. And so, uh, off, yeah. yeah, and so it was, and it's obviously a physically challenging job as well, and there's a, there's a team uh, a team effort involved. But anyways, back to the to to our thing about uh, you know uh, physical. physically challenging activities for for children or, you know, certainly um, activities that that challenge them from a, uh, when I say mentally or verbally, you know, verbal banter and being able to take it, essentially. And, you know, hopefully things will get better and not worse. You know, again, I imagine the boy crisis is about it's getting worse, right?
1: Uh, It's about bringing back... I like think the it's been it's been a while since I read it, but it's like being aware of the the dynamics that often happen between the father and the mother and the mother calling the father out on these activities. It's like making it clear that both of them have the right mindset. The mother wants to keep them safe and train them to be nice, and the dad wants them to train resilience and not to not start crying the moment their um, bottle of water is empty or whatever. So. Recognizing that there is a difference and that uh, it's a natural difference and that it has its purpose. That was the the takeaway message from me there.
0: Got it. You know, it's interesting, uh it's it's almost like the opposite of my house. I'm probably the soft one. My wife is like, eh, toughen up, hmm. you know, to my kids. Yeah. And it gets I guess different with boys. Yeah, but I can uh, see
1: that it doesn't get softer than you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, here we go. You ready? Go. All right, here we go. Rolling the sleeves up. <laughs> Gloves are off. Let's go. No, no, I'm already uh, rolling over.
0: Uh, uh, the, the mental sleeves of mm. anyways, uh, uh, well, good. So, uh, we've been talking, I don't know, for maybe, uh, an hour and a half or so. Uh, is there anything that, uh, we didn't talk about that you'd like to talk about before
1: we oh, finish up? He says, there's so much. Don't even, don't even get me started. Uh, or is there a work well, we find you? I'll, uh, I'll tell you, I'll class? tell you one, one little, um, side note that ties into resilience since we, we talked about that just before you came. Please do. Um, so something that happened to me um, last year 14 months ago was pretty much the worst thing that um, could have ever happened to me so i'm setting this up pretty pretty well here but the thing is when when i grew up as a kid uh, growing up with a disability that back then wasn't really researched that well and people didn't know there are any treatments i had like diff- different things tested on me whether this works and that works so basically No one knew much about my disability, except that it's it's about um, the muscles not being as strong as they should be. And this getting worse every year. That was what people knew. And there was also one more thing that my entire family knew, and that was that I should not break any limb, because if you put it in a cast and I can't use it for months um, and I can't build up muscle, I'm only losing it um, the moment. So I was raised with the idea that if I break a leg, I'm never going to walk again. That was that was it. That was story of my childhood. Uh, my aunt, when I was like eight years older, so my aunt bought me rollerblades for my birthday, and my mom was like, "Can you please return them? Um, give him something else because this is too dangerous." So this is this is how how I how I grew up, and then one and a half years in uh, November two thousand eighteen, I'm walking through my apartment because I'm gonna use the wheelchair when I'm when I'm outside, and I fall and. I, break, I broke broke my leg. And, well, I didn't want to admit to it because worst thing that could ever happen. So actually calling the ambulance and saying, um, you know, this is what happened. I broke my leg. It was like, fuck, I don't know what, what what's happening here. Um, and now it's one and a half years later. And I feel stronger than before. Like, this was the worst thing. Physically stronger. At, f- mentally, first mm-hmm. and foremost. Physically... I'm almost back to the level that I was at, um, at at that time, still lacking a little bit of flexibility here, but primarily like, like physically, mentally stronger, like this was the worst thing that the universe could throw at me and and look at this, like, this is nothing can, nothing can, can take me down. And um, a good, good friend of mine who does a lot of happiness research, his name is Christoph Schniedlitz um he uh, gave me a call after i got out of the hospital and he said you know what that's not going to help you right now but um one day you're going to be stronger than before and i know that you don't want to hear this right now i know you don't care about that but you know one day you'll look back at this and you'll realize um, that you've built resilience through this mentally stronger Yeah. yeah and yeah now i'm back and i'm like yeah just give me another six months to train up the little gap that i still have but this was an eye-opening experience, and it was it was powerful. Um,
0: How do you know you're stronger mentally?
1: Well, because this was the biggest fear, and it's no longer a fear, um, because I saw that I did really well. So I came out of the hospital, and I stayed in my apartment here in Vienna. My family's in Germany. Um, it didn't really logistically play out that they take care of me, um, even though they wanted to, but it just... It was so hard to make it happen, and I told them, "Hey, if by any chance I can make it on my own, um, then I'm gonna stay in Vienna." And it kind—I of, don't even know how this worked out, but somehow I—I I didn't starve and I didn't like um, do anything, do anything stupid in the work. Uber out. Eats, hmm? sorry. Uber Eats. Yeah, yeah. They—I think they bought a new BMW after after I moved back into my apartment, um, and. I learned to uh, live with the pain that was a constant. Learned with the, the agony of the the physical exercise and the stretching that was a constant. Um, just moving around, everything was painful. And at one point, I was like, "Yeah, this is this is it." I learned a lot about mindfulness when I started walking again, and it was just a lot of pain everywhere.
0: Can you expand upon that about your your what Mind- you learned about mindfulness? Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: So. When i was so my, my first beginnings at walking was um, park in my bedroom because then i could walk along the wall and i could either fall against the wall or i could fall on my bed so it's like kind of pretty pretty safe and i started walking and i could maybe do like 10 meters or 10 steps 20 steps maximum and it was just an excruciating pain that would at one point set in and my the, the the previous version of myself would have said, just do just get over with it. Just do your 10 steps. And then, you know, you can get, I don't know, a little reward You get some ice cream or whatever. And then another part of me stepped in and said, um, how about instead of getting this over with, I get curious about it. And the entire like 10 steps became, what can I learn about myself here? When does this pain happen? Is it at a certain number of steps? Is it if, if, if I make a certain stride length? Is it... If I twist my leg a little, just bringing in curiosity into everything I was doing so that the pain was no longer an obstacle, but kind of the, the thing that was observed. And that, for example, is something that I now bring into procrastination. How about instead of trying to fight this thing, how about I just get curious about what's holding me back? And, so when
0: you got curious like about the pain, did, did, you're saying it actually diminished the pain? or
1: No, but it diminished the power that the pain had because before it was bad and scary and then it became something that I was kind of a little bit curious about it was still painful it was still bad but it had this added touch of hmm that's interesting that's interesting so what were you, what
0: was it like when you're looking at or you're you know I'll, I'll use looking just for the term looking at the pain viewing the pain realizing the pain what was it like what do you recall like what emotion or what feeling you had Aside from
1: the physical pain, well, it, it was scary. It was scary because I remember that um, there was this thing where after a couple of steps, I would suddenly get an immense pain in my in my knee and in my hip, and I thought that if that hits me out of the blue, I might I might just pass out. I might just you know collapse or whatever, and and that was kind of you know. That, so that was that was definitely scary. That then after it happened a few times, like you know what? This, yeah, it's painful, but I don't pass out. This is you know, it's just I go like. <laughs> A little bit and then and then it's then i just keep walking and recognizing things like that um yeah see that's what happens when i forget the question
0: no, no it's interesting it, it because the pain didn't change right it's still there oh. Oh. uh your state changed a little bit on how because of your curiosity yeah. right because now yeah, you're looking at it, you're exactly. not you're not afraid or whatever whatever the previous uh, reacting maybe to it as opposed now you're like okay perspective but, change and yeah kind perspective of change, change
1: change we're all wearing glasses the entire time and you can mm-hmm. ask whether they're they're dark or green or pink or whatever but we're all wearing glasses and just recognizing that they are there makes it a little bit easier to shift them around and say hey you know what instead of wearing my dark glasses right now why don't I wear my my scientific researcher glasses right, right now and look through them you'd still look at the same thing but you kind of see it differently
0: right and I, I guess it's it's Similar to what I said earlier about uh, one of the ways that people uh, deal with OCD, again, is, oh, there's my OCD. When it comes up, you kind of look at it and and examine it and, you know, oh, what's going on? I'm curious as to what it's up to. And there it is. And again, that seems to diminish the effect that it has on on people. So yeah, I think that's, that's a really good lesson for a lot of things, right, that pain us in the sense of how do you turn it around? And, yeah, okay, I'm feeling really bad about something. So, hmm, let me look at that emotion. Oh, that really painful emotion. And, you know, it's, and I think anybody who's done it knows that it, it does diminish it, you know? Yeah, yeah Recognize it, it changes it.
1: recognizing, naming an emotion is going to diminish it a little bit yeah. already. But fighting it is going to just make it stronger because you give it validity. Right. So, but here's now, here's your conundrum. Because if you think that admitting to the and observing it is going to diminish it, if I, if I just look at it curiously enough, it's going to go away. Now, this is kind of your new way of fighting it. Do you see what I'm, I'm getting with this? So, so you see now... it as a new technique to get rid of that thing, to fight it. And now again, because you're fighting it, you make it stronger. So there's this honest look at it with honest curiosity. And then there's this look at it with curiosity, with the intent to make it go away. Right, in which case you validate it and make it stronger. So this is this is a tricky,
0: tricky line. No, I, I I see what you're saying. It's probably one of those things where if you're if you have the mindfulness, the the awareness to do something like this, then you have to be willing to be flexible in how you approach it, right? And so it's mm-hmm. working this way, and then maybe it's kind of like when someone says, "Hey, you know, don't think of elephants."
1: Yeah. Boom. Right. And then you're thinking of elephants, so yeah. don't. Then then Wagner's famous. Um, it, co- it calls it the ironic rebound I right it's ironic that it actually comes back when you tell people not to think stuff like that yeah and so uh, you know,
0: the same thing with uh, anyways my point, point being is I think when you're when you're dealing with these types of things and you're dealing with whether it's physical pain or, or some emotional issues and you're taking that approach the curious approach you also have to have the flexibility to know that you it it may, Depending on your your use of it, it may lose its um, effectiveness, and then you need to try something different.
1: And instead yeah. of fighting or, it, or you could just become curious about that as well. That's classic, a good point. You know, classic mindfulness. Yeah, Take classic one step back. Practice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Good. Uh, okay. So, um, where can we find you online?
1: Uh, so my, my online presence is kind of um, embarrassingly little um, you can find a little bit about me oh, what's your home phone on, number that's fine we'll just on, uh, it. <laughs> 666 no you can mm-hmm. you can find me at um, michaelherold.coach. dot um, coach that's H-E-R-O-L-D. A um, a hero in low definition as i like to make the horrible joke um, you can find my my coaching work primarily at the art of where you find my core confidence Group coaching program and you find the, the podcast and a lot of other really cool stuff that we have out there. And, and this is
0: uh, so articharm.com, and correct. they have the and they they have multiple courses you can take or they have they
1: have multiple courses okay that that are out there. Right now there's a residential boot camp that's happening in um in LA. Um there's my, my online training course, there are a variety of online platforms and on demand video courses.
0: Okay, and you produce their podcast. I well, produce. Right? I'm one
1: of the two producers. The two producers um, and I do I do the research for the podcast as well.
0: Okay. Wonderful. Good. Well thanks a lot, Michael. I really enjoyed well, yeah, it. Yeah, this uh, was this um, was
1: really this was really great. Uh, thank you so much for setting this up.
0: And I got some uh, some some good tips from someone who's got it seems like a lot of experience coaching and helping others uh, either get over some issues or advance or themselves. Or create them. <laughs> or create them, yes. Yeah, well, it's a good I was gonna creative. wait until I turned off the mic to say that. <laughs> But great. Thanks so much, Michael. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.